You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, the podcast where you can discover what you need to know about cybersecurity. To learn more, visit us at cybersecurityinside.com. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Morehart. And today, we have a very special guest, Brett Johnson. He is an expert in cybersecurity and cybercrime. As the former U.S. most wanted cyber criminal and consultant, woo, we got stories to tell there. He also hosts the Brett Johnson Show on YouTube. He's a keynote speaker and he operates Anglerfish Security. So, welcome to the podcast, Brett. Hey, thank you. I'm humbled to be on here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, first things first, Anglerfish, are you a fisherman? No, no, I'm not. So anglerfish is spelled with a PH as, you know, a fishing attack. And that that name comes from the investigation that I was involved in. So the group that I started was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's dark net and dark net markets. October 26th of 04, United States Secret Service arrests 33 people, six countries in six hours. I'm the only guy that gets away. They pick me up four months later. They give me a job. My job was as a consultant and an informant for the United States Secret Service. And that investigation was called Operation Anglerfish. So I continued to break the law from inside Secret Service offices for the next 10 months until they found out about it. I took off on a cross-country crime spree, still $600,000 in the space of four months. Wake up one morning on the United States Most Wanted list. Go to Disney World, get arrested, sent to prison, escape from prison, get arrested again, and served out my time. So when I got out, I was given the opportunity to turn my life around. I adopted the name of Anglerfish. Wow. Long story short. Was that job <laughs> offer, I'm, I'm curious, was that job offer from the Secret Service uh, after you had been arrested, was that like a job offer that you could refuse or was that a job offer you could not refuse? Oh, no, I, I could have refused, but I would have remained in jail. And uh, the, the thing was, is I was arrested February 8th of 2005, three weeks before my scheduled marriage. My fiance had no idea what I did for a living. So once she found out I was a criminal, I was like, hey, I'll do whatever it takes in order to get back with her. And that was working for the United States Secret Service. Wow. Well, uh, our listeners will be happy that you spelled fish with a PH and not an F because the rest of the podcast would have been you and I talking about actual fishing. But uh, so we'll see that right? for a different day. <laughs> uh, but today we wanted to talk about the dark web. And basically, everybody has heard the term dark web. Probably a few at least have a decent idea of what it is. But I think a good place to start is describe what is the dark web? So sure. And, and the reason I'm, I'm a little hesitant about that is the definition of the dark web has been changing over the years. You see, the United States Navy, they developed this thing called the Tor browser, the onion router. And they developed that so that intelligence operatives could communicate with each other without being identified. It then goes open source with the idea that whistleblowers could use it or that someone behind a country's firewall would be able to use that to access the real Internet. 
what they forgot to understand is that adoptees of technology, if the technology can be used to remain somewhat anonymous or to launder money, the first adoptees tend to be criminals. So as soon as Tor gets out there, we see all these criminals start to use Tor to communicate in order to commit crimes, in order to work together to network. So that's basically the genesis of the dark web. Well, over the years, the the problem is, in order for you to use Tor properly, you kind of have to know how to use it. If you don't, you can be identified and you end up going to prison. And typically, that's what we see a lot of. You see somebody that thinks they're protected, that they're anonymous, they're not, and they make some sort of silly mistake or they've got Java turned on or something like that. Law enforcement identifies them, goes arrest them, gives them 20 years in prison. Because of that and because of the paranoia, because law enforcement has gotten so good about shutting down dark web websites, we see that a lot of different services have started to pop up and a lot of criminals are starting to look at smaller and smaller encrypted messaging services in order to network together, to sell wares, commit crimes, what have you. The big one on the block right now is Telegram. So uh, that's really the Wild West of cybercrime. So this definition of the dark web has changed over the years, where it's not just Tor and those Tor-based sites anymore. It's things like Wicker. It's things like Telegram. It's things like Discord, WhatsApp, Signal. All these other services work together so that criminals can work together, exchange, share information, collaborate, profit. Are people anonymous or disassociated from their identities on it? They are. So you take you take Telegram, for example. Telegram is owned by a Russian and Telegram is very anti-law enforcement, which is pretty interesting when you think about it. Telegram does not answer to United States courts, yet it's still allowed to operate within the United States. Personally, I'm against that. The problem is, is that, you know, you've got these people that are not tech savvy. And Telegram is very low friction from a criminal point of view. Basically, you only have to have a phone number to register an account on Telegram. Telegram doesn't answer subpoenas. It doesn't give up any information at all. It allows crime and fraud to flourish on that particular platform. So it's it's a very conducive environment for criminals who are not really tech savvy to go in and be able to profit and start to learn how to be successful at online crime. And so obviously our our mission here is not to try to teach people how to break the law, but at a rudimentary level, can you walk us through, let's say you had some sort of nefarious intent, but you really aren't that tech savvy. How do you go about doing this? And I, I, I again, this is not a how-to video, but it's sure. more about understanding the evolution of the dark web and where we're at today, like, like the current world class of the dark web. What does it look like? So there's three sites that really kind of start the genesis of modern cybercrime. There's Counterfeit Library, Shadow Crew, and then ultimately Carter Planet, which was opened by Dmitry Golubov, Ukrainian national. Those individuals who were part of those sites, the platform of cybercrime itself was not established enough. So if you were a member, an expert on those sites, you typically had to understand most dynamics of online crime. You had to know what the security of the target was that you were hitting, how to bypass the security, how those tools operated, how to run a drop address, how to have proper operational security so that you weren't identified or you were made anonymous. You had to know every single aspect of that. Today, 
the cybercrime platform is refined enough that a cyber criminal who has absolutely no experience or no understanding of any of those dynamics, they don't have to know all that. You can simply ask questions within those channels, whether it be a forum, whether it be a telegram session or a discord channel or anything else. You could start asking questions and it's an open source environment. You typically will get someone that will start to educate you, start to tell you what you need to do. So you can do that. You can buy tutorials on how to commit one specific type of fraud. Tutorials can be purchased for as low as $10. Sometimes they run a few hundred dollars. If you're not comfortable enough with a tutorial, you can buy or take live instruction classes. And to really understand it, you have to kind of understand the three necessities of cybercrime. For cybercrime to be successful, you have to gather data, you have to commit the crime, and then you have to be able to cash it out. All three of those necessities have to work in conjunction. The problem is is that a single criminal, one person, can't do all three things. They can do one, sometimes two, but rarely can they do all three. And the reason for that is there's two reasons. Either it's a skill gap. That specific criminal simply doesn't know how to do one of those aspects. So he doesn't know how to do a man-in-the-middle attack or doesn't understand the intricacies of a phishing attack, what have you. Or it's a problem with the geographic location. That criminal is simply in a geographic area where they're not able to do one of those three necessities. Typically, put money in pocket, launder the funds out. And we saw that during the pandemic with unemployment fraud. So you had people in the Ukraine, in Russia, in Brazil, in the EU that were hitting states' unemployment offices. They had all the data in the world. They were able to commit the crime because there was absolutely no security in place for six months. But because they were in an area outside of the United States, they had to rely on money mules stateside to cash out for them. That way, no flags were raised and they were able to continue withdrawing funds. So because of those three necessities, you have dark web marketplaces, you have the forums, you have Telegram, Discord, channels like that, that work and operate so that one criminal can work and network with other criminals who are good in areas where he, sometimes she, is not. I had a, a question about trust ah. because you've talked about that in previous interviews you've done. And you, you always say like in the criminal world, you need to first establish trust and, and then you can you know profit from somebody or take advantage of somebody. And you know, it's funny because we're looking in the non-criminal world at one of the most important things in business is to establish trust. And then particularly around cybersecurity, you know, how can you assure that the computer or the device is trustworthy? How can you assure the network is trustworthy? So do you see trust as like, is it dual sided? Is it different in sort of the criminal world or is it actually the same? And how do we navigate that on either side of the equation? You know, what, what's interesting to me, and I, I've quoted this several times in different presentations and webinars as well, Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. So taking that from a criminal point of view, if I'm looking to defraud or, or victimize an individual or a company, I'm going to anticipate that they're going to trust and they're going to verify. But my question is, from a criminal standpoint, my question is, is how far are they going to verify? How many levels deep are they going to go to try to determine whether I'm who I say I am or that I'm a fraudster? So I, I try to anticipate that. So if I'm, say I'm hitting a, a retail merchant using stolen credit card data, I have the stolen credit card data. That's one tool to establish trust. 
I may have an email address. So that email address, what am I going to anticipate with that? Is the company going to be able, are they using some service like emailage that is trying to determine the age of the email? So I need to try to anticipate that. Most of the time, they're not going to do that. So I can use just a simply a, a Gmail address that is created on the fly most of the time. But if it's a company where I where I figure that they are using a service like that, I may try to go and buy a domain that has been registered in the past. That way it looks like the email address has been established for a long time. Or I may try to age out the email by having data or anything, you know, some sort of history registering with reward systems or a PayPal account or, or what have you. So I'll, I'll try to anticipate how many levels deep that potential victim will try to verify who I am. Typically, it's no more than two, or three, three, two to three levels. And that's one of the reasons that synthetic fraud is so successful from a criminal point of view. Synthetic fraud works by me defrauding the Social Security Administration by by using their own tools against them, by going into the credit bureau and being able to put that ghost in the system and then using that information to establish credit. And what I understand from a criminal point of view on that point is that any creditor that I try to defraud, they're not going to look past the credit bureau and that credit score that I've established. They're only going to go that deep and only that deep. So understanding that from a criminal point of view and, and how trust works is important when you go to victimize someone. But from the criminal point of view, I have to be able to trust my criminal associates because I know that law enforcement is in those areas. I know that fraud analysts are on those channels as well. So there's a, there's an entire system that's set up on the criminal side that tries to establish trust between criminals, that tries to make sure that you're dealing with somebody that is a criminal and that knows what they're talking about. So you have vouchers and the vouchers go back to that old age of the, you know, the Italian mafia. You know, I vouch for this guy who he's who he says he is. And, and that means something. When you vouch for someone, you're then responsible for whatever that person does. If that person then rips someone off, they come back to you and you have to make that person uh, you know, solid at that point. So you've got vouching systems, you've got review systems, you've got escrow systems, all with that idea of establishing trust with one criminal and another. And that's really important. You take, you take some of these cybercrime environments now. Some of them are hundreds of thousands, maybe a million members large. And you've got all of these humans working together, sharing, exchanging information in real time. It becomes a really nice platform to know who to trust, what's going wrong with a vendor, an individual, a criminal, an associate, what have you. So trust plays a really important part on the criminal side. In the past, you've profiled cyber criminals' motivations as three different categories, right? Either cash, low-hanging fruit, status, which I guess is sort of the equivalent of fame, and ideology. And you say that these different motivations have all kinds of different levels of tenacity as well. I'm wondering if the effect of whoever it is means that a company or a person, individual needs to protect themselves against each kind of criminal motive, or if it's just the motive behind the attack and the attack is, it doesn't matter what the motive behind it is. The attack would look the same. 
No, no, I, I don't think the attack looks the same at all. So, so as we said, if it's if the motivation is cash based, that criminal is simply looking to steal cash. That criminal is going to look for the easiest target that gives the largest return on investment, that lowest hanging fruit, as you said. But if it's fame based, that status, if that criminal is able to do something that no one else within his criminal community can do, it doesn't really matter about the security. That criminal is looking for the high security, something that he can do that no one else can. And that gains him respect, which equates to profit within those criminal communities. And then finally, ideology. Have you pissed someone off? Does someone have a different belief than you do? Understand the motivation and you'll understand the persistence of the attack. Someone who's attacking you because of, of an ideological basis, that's an attacker who is not going to stop. They're looking at you specifically. And yes, as a company, you could be targeted for all three things. For example, I gave a, a keynote speech for, um, for Chanel about a year and a half ago. And the interesting thing about Chanel is that they hit all three motivations. You're looking at attackers who are looking to steal money. You're looking at attackers who can hit Chanel because of the brand name. They go back to their community and say, hey, I got Chanel. And then you're looking at attackers who, hey, Chanel. Huh, is that a French company? Why? Well, I, I just don't like, you know, the French mindset or their their political beliefs. So you got you got all three things hit there. You have to design your defenses to address all three of those types of attackers. Because when you think about it, there are only really seven types of attackers. You've got criminals like I used to be. You've got hacktivists. You've got insiders. You've got terrorists. You've got uh, the script kiddies, the, na the nation state attacks. You've got the uh, the vendors that sell the types of tools. So those, those seven different attackers are there and all seven have a different type of motivation. So depending on your company, I've talked about that before too, you need to understand your place in the cybercrime spectrum. Why are you being attacked? Is it because of cash? Is it because you're that brand name and I can get fame in my environment? Or is it because of your political stance or the ideology that's going on? Understand that, design security and go from there. What do you see as the future? You've kind of described uh, where we've been. You've kind of described where we're at today. How should we expect the dark web to evolve? So it, that's really, it's interesting and it's really scary at the same time. So Shadow Crew gets shut down 2004. We ended with 4,000 members. Fast forward to 2017, Alpha Bay is the largest criminal network on the planet, 240,000 members when law enforcement shuts it down. Two years later, 2019, a dark web marketplace called Black Markets shut down 1.15 million members, all of that pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, the fraud numbers exploded because you had stimulus packages in place and there was no security, so you had massive amounts of fraudsters coming in committing fraud. Those people, now that the stimulus programs have ended, they're not really going to go and flip burgers or go to school or anything else like that because they've gotten a taste of how profitable online crime is. The problem is, is that 98% of those criminals are not skilled. You know, we have this perception, a lot of it's because of the media, because of these 
security companies out there that are snake oil salesmen, and they try to sell product by FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And they paint the attacker as this hacker, this upper tier computer genius that is untouchable. That's not really the truth. You have those types of attackers out there, but 98% of cyber criminals, they're just good social engineers. They don't really understand the dynamics or the security or anything else, but they don't have to. The more sophisticated tools cybercrime has, like bots, ransomware, things like that, typically the 98 percentile of cyber criminals have never experienced those and they wouldn't know what to do with them. What we're seeing now is that vendors have almost, it's almost been subconscious. They're starting to understand that, hey, we've got an entire demographic of criminals that we've never marketed to. So now we're starting to see these services being offered and developed to where that unskilled criminal can now use them. You see marketplaces like Genesis. Genesis Marketplace is a bot marketplace. They've got 400,000 bots on there. The bots range anywhere from $3.75 up to $400. And the bot sits on someone's network. That person then goes to sign into their bank account or a retail merchant or email, where have you. The bot captures the cookie. It captures the browser fingerprint, their credentials, every single thing that the attacker then needs to take over that specific account. and But the developers also understand that, hey, these people wouldn't know what to do with a cookie if they had it. So in order to help them out, that marketplace has a standalone browser or a browser plugin that then automates everything for that person who buys that bot, plugs it all in so you don't have to know anything at all, lets you come in, bypass multi-factor authentication, take over the account, do whatever you want to. And that's just one aspect of how cybercrime is continuing to be refined. We're seeing that across all these different cybercrime verticals about how these products are being developed and marketed toward that unskilled cybercriminal that's out there. And that, that's really scary. Well, Brett, this has been a very interesting set of conversations we've been having here. Before we let you go, though, we like to do a, a segment we call Fun Facts. And so... Uh, I wonder, do you have a fun fact you'd like to share with our audience? You know, I, I do. You had mentioned that before before I came on the show, and I really didn't know what I was going to talk about until Eastern Kentucky got hit with the, these devastating floods. I'm from Hazard, Kentucky, you know, that center of where all the floods have hit. And I've had um, friends, relatives that have uh, died and that have also lost every single thing that they've had. And we're a very poor people. I was very fortunate that I was able to get out of that environment, but my heart is still in Eastern Kentucky. And what I read was, is, you know, historically hillbillies have been kind of disparaged and looked down upon. Uh, someone was kind enough to post the origin of the word hillbilly. And I would just like to read that because I thought it was interesting. Hillbilly. The word originates from Scots-Irish, the Ulster Scots in Northern Ireland, who moved into the Appalachian Mountains in the 1700s. Billy, or Billies, was the term meaning brother, friend, or comrade. Billy boys was the term used referring to the Ulster Protestants who supported William of Orange, a.k.a. Billy, in invading England. They were also known to wear sashes around their necks, coining the term rednecks. 
And once the Scots-Irish moved or migrated in droves to the United States, they quickly moved into the mountains and hills of Appalachia. The Billies now were comrades of the hills and mountains, therefore became known as Hill Billies. So I just thought I'd share that. That is fascinating, actually. I, and the redneck thing, too. I, I had a totally different backstory on redneck in mind. But uh, And Camille, I think for your benefit, you're actually technically on vacation. So are you going to take a vacation from the oh, well, I from should. The I should seed my fun fact. I, You know, my fun fact is going to be simple. I think it's very interesting that there is only one kind of tea plant that exists. I mean, of course you can drink, you know, peppermint tea or chamomile tea, but if you're going to drink just tea, green tea or black tea, it's one kind of camellia. And uh, it just depends on how you treat the leaves, how much oxidization you use, whether it's green or black in the end. I had no idea. (laughs) I did not know that either. That's very cool. Uh, So my fun fact is going to be in honor of uh, the summer. And it has to do with sunglasses. So, of course, we think about sunglasses as a way to protect your eyes from bright sunlight or a fashion accessory. But sunglasses were originally made out of smoky quartz in the 12th century China, where they were used by judges to mask their emotions when they were questioning witnesses. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? Who would have I guess that's why cops wear the mirrored glasses sometimes, too, is mm. to mask their emotions. They're all trying to look like <laughs> Ponch and John from the chips. <laughs> Next time I'm on jury duty. There you go. There you go. You know, I don't do jury duty. They they don't let me. Yeah, <laughs> Excuse, imagine that. That was your one. <laughs> yeah. Brett, thanks so much for uh, for coming in and talking to us today. It's a really interesting and light, enlightening conversation on the dark web. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.